Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Well, it's Tuesday, but we've already got a lot of economic data out this week, and we've got a lot more data coming out later in the week. It's going to culminate on Friday with the jobs report, the unemployment level and the number of jobs created. So we'll discuss that on Friday. But for now, the news that we've got has mostly been negative and will end up subtracting from the third quarter initial estimate for GDP. We got numbers on construction spending on Monday and the PMI manufacturing index, both coming in below estimates. The construction numbers should impact again uh, the second quarter. But perhaps the biggest impact on the second quarter will be the much bigger than expected increase in the, the trade deficit for the month of August. The government was expecting a trade deficit, I think, of about $40 billion. Instead, we got $43 billion. That's a 7.6% increase from the prior month. In fact, we saw a reduction, an overall reduction in imports and exports. So we're exporting less, but we still have a bigger trade deficit, even with the big drop in oil prices, which, which helps the trade deficit because it means it's less expensive to import oil. The problem is, excluding petroleum, we had the worst trade deficit ever. Actually, I think it was a tie for the worst trade deficit ever. Maybe we'll break the tie next month. We did have a record high trade deficit with China. I think we even had a five-year high in our trade deficit with Canada. You know, even though the Canadian dollar has been weakening recently against the U.S. dollar, mainly because of the drop in oil prices. And by the way, based on some of the uh, announcements coming out of uh, Saudi Arabia, they've been reducing prices. It sent oil uh, basically plummeting 4 or $5 a barrel over a couple-day period. As I record this now, we're under $77 a barrel for crude. And now, as I had said, I thought it looked like the price of crude oil could go below $80 a barrel, maybe as low as $70, $75. Uh, it looks like that is happening, but I don't believe that these levels are going to be sustainable. Uh, given all the inflation that's being created around the world and the inflation that I believe is going to be created in the United States. You know, when it comes to QE, the third time is not the charm. Everybody thinks that QE3 worked. It didn't work any better than QE2. And the economic data that we're getting, to me, suggests, again, that this economy is decelerating rapidly, that we are quickly headed for recession unless the Fed cuts it off at the pass with QE4, 
which I believe is coming. We'll see what kind of, uh, again, jobs data we get later in the week. You know, I was reading this article about the big decline, the supposed decline in our budget deficit, right? They're saying that the budget deficit is down to $484.4 billion. And that's for the 12-month period ended, I guess, November. Well, you know, I looked up the increase in the national debt during that 12-month period, which right now the national debt stands at $17.9 trillion. So it's going to be $18 trillion before the month is over. But $17.9 trillion. But during that one-year period, when our deficit was supposedly only $484 billion, our national debt grew by $1.1 trillion. $1.1 trillion. Well, if we added $1.1 trillion to the debt during that year, then what was our deficit? It must be $1.1 trillion because we're $1.1 trillion deeper in the hole than we were at the beginning of the year. So all this government accounting, the way they account for their pension funds or uh, Social Security or off-budget items, all that smoke and mirrors can't hide the fact that the national debt grew by $1.1 trillion. So why is the media buying this propaganda and just taking the $483 billion figure and running with it? Obviously, that is not the fact, because we are going into debt $1.1 trillion. I mean, that means even if we balance the budget, we'd still be going into debt by $700 trillion a year. I mean, you'd have to run a huge surplus, according to the way the government does math, You'd have to run about a $700 billion surplus every year just to keep the national debt stable. So clearly there's some accounting fraud going on here, but nobody cares. And imagine how much worse these numbers are going to be when we get the next official economic downturn. You know, there is an article out today, which and I've been saying this about European QE, that I, I think all this talk about all the QE that Europe is going to do Maybe just talk, because I think there's a lot of opposition among northern central bankers to what Draghi is proposing. And we got a Reuters story out today that suggests uh, that is exactly the case. And there is some pushback now against Draghi. So maybe uh, it isn't a certainty that we're going to get QE out of Europe after all. No, I never believed that it was, but the markets seem to have been pricing it in. And so just because the Japanese are doing more QE doesn't necessarily mean the Europeans are dumb enough to follow uh, their example. And it's not going to be enough, right? We did get a big shot in the arm uh, from uh, Japan when the Fed officially announced the end of QE, uh, that Japan came in the next day to pick up the baton, right? Uh, And the Japanese yen continued its decline. It was down big on Friday, down big again on Monday. I think it's bouncing a little bit here on, on, on Tuesday. But that big drop in the yen uh, sent the Nikkei flying. But it also sent the U.S. stock market to new highs. But if we take the European right, uh, rate hikes or not rate hikes, or European QE off the table, then that will knock a lot of the wind out of the sail. And, that, and it, will be, it will more than offset the supposed benefits from the extra QE coming out of, uh, coming out of Japan. But, you know, we continue uh, to have the media cheerleading this phony economic recovery, right? Even though the data really doesn't bear out the recovery, people are turning a blind eye to anything that contradicts the narrative, and they're just simply focusing in on the random 
uh, bright uh, numbers that we get. I think we did get uh, a number from ISM Manufacturing Index that was better than expected, and that's all I heard. All the, all the focus was on the data point that was better than expected, and they conveniently ignore uh, the more numerous data points that are weaker than expected, especially, you know, these retail sales numbers that we're getting, um, you know, from uh, same-store sales and consumer spending. They're all weak. I mean, weaker than expected. If this economy is recovering, you know, why aren't we seeing it in, in those numbers? But here's an example of the type of stuff, right, that the media is saying, I mean, and, and my example is just CNBC. So, you know, obviously they're, they're going to, there's going to be other examples that I'm just, uh, I'm just not hearing, but this is just some of the examples that I got from listening to the way it's being reported on, on CNBC. First one here, listen to what Jim Cramer had to say, right? Listen, listen to how, how clueless, Right, and bra- brain dead, this guy is. Honest broker country right now. We're like stand out as banks are the best. Our Federal Reserve is probably the most reasonable. Our profit picture is great. These other countries have deflation, which we know from the 20s is historic. I am being positive. I am not afraid to be positive. We've got the greatest banks. You know, we've got great profits. We're the greatest, you know, and, and the rest of the world is suffering deflation. And we all know how bad that is, right? Because that means... You're going to have a depression, right? We all know we 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 dodge that bullet, right? Oh no, no, no. We're we we don't have to deal with falling prices. Our citizens get the benefit of paying higher prices, right? Complete nonsense. But you know, it actually gets worse. There was on this is on Monday. We got a couple of um, news stories, news items that you would think would maybe cause some people to second guess their optimism, right? But instead, they just dismissed it. One was this survey conducted by BlackRock. BlackRock taking the pulse of investors in our new survey. Only about one in four American investors believe the U.S. economy and job market are getting better. More than a third say both are getting worse. This is the actual numbers, but as they say, especially as the midterms approach, perception is reality. How can this be, right? Because we know from the numbers that the economy is getting better. And of course, it's all about the midterm elections, which... Are happening today. In fact, I voted earlier this morning. I'll be talking about the results of the elections tomorrow. But they're trying to explain, you know, voter dissatisfaction and that the Republicans might benefit from the fact that so many people incorrectly believe the economy is getting worse when we all know from the numbers that it's getting better. You know, why don't they question the numbers or question their understanding or their spin on the numbers. Because actually, from my perspective, if you really look at the numbers, the numbers confirm that things are getting worse. If you just look at the headlines and 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 you listen to how people are spinning them, then you might think the economy is getting better. But I think the people who are living in the economy, who are experiencing it, are a pretty good judge of how it's doing. You know, and this is exactly what people were saying in 2007 when, you know, uh, the the voters and they were looked the 2008 elections were coming and everybody was talking about all the voters were worried about the economy and all the pundits were saying, well, why is there this big disconnect? Why, why is there a disconnect between the voters and the economy? And I always said, no, the disconnect was between the numbers and the economy. The voters had it right. They were living in the lousy economy. They didn't believe those hyped up numbers. But, of course, some of these experts, uh, you know, 
they don't experience the pain that average Americans are feeling. So they don't realize that the numbers are wrong. But people living in the economy, right, they know. Like another example was this news item that we got on Monday regarding um, the percentage of homes being purchased by first-time home buyers. Welcome back with some troubling news to the housing market today. A new study finding that not even an improving job market and low interest rates can lure first-time home buyers into the market. So the commentators on CNBC are, again, are scratching their heads and they're thinking, well, why is this happening, right? Because, you know, we have this improving jobs market. So why isn't the improving jobs market and, you know, the lower interest rates, how come this isn't luring in more first-time buyers, right? Well, the reason, and if these guys paid any attention, if they dug beneath the headlines, right, they're talking about an improving job market. The All the improvement is in low-wage jobs. It's in part-time and temporary jobs. Look, if you get a part-time job, you know, cooking French fries at McDonald's for minimum wage, you can't exactly buy a house. That's the reality. The jobs that are being created are not the kind of jobs that is going to let somebody buy their first house. Those are the jobs that are being destroyed. The types of jobs that would pay you an income high enough to afford not only buying a house, but maintaining it. Because just coming up with a down payment and qualifying and your mortgage, that's just the beginning. You got property taxes, maintenance, insurance, upkeep, right? Houses are expensive, right? They're money pits. So you have to have money to afford the pit. But the kind of jobs that provide the purchasing power where the worker can buy a house, those are the jobs that are being destroyed. But if the you know people on CNBC actually read some of these reports instead of just regurgitating the headlines, they would know that the jobs are no good. And that the fact that we have fewer uh, first-time homebuyers in the market makes perfect sense given the actual data. If you see that we've transitioned from a full-time workforce to a part-time workforce, well, part-time workers are renters. They can't buy a house. They have to rent, and they probably have to take on a roommate. Or maybe a lot of them aren't even renting because they're living in their parents' basements, right? And if you can't get a job uh, that you can even pay off your student loan, well, then how are you going to buy a house? But again, the media just continues to be oblivious to what is actually going on. And, you know, this, you know, it's a bit of comical. I hate to just make fun of um, another, you know, the uh, the C- guy on CNBC, Joe Kernan, who, you know, I think he's a nice guy. You know, I think he's got a good sense of humor. Although he did, you know, I did go over on the show not too long ago, an exchange, an email exchange that we had where it was kind of, uh, you know, where I, I brought up my the fact that I was saying that QE was a monetary roach motel because I heard him say it and I was like hey you know I've been saying that for years I'm glad you're coming around and he got kind of upset that I he thought I was kind of claiming some kind of exclusive right to be able to use the word uh, monetary roach motel uh, when I wasn't um, but he happened to get in an exchange on CNBC there was a guy there from Ireland and talking about what's going on in the Irish economy. And Joe Kernan, you know, had just been back to, from the UK. He was in Scotland, I think, playing golf. But he's, they're interviewing this guy from Ireland. And then, you know, it's almost, I'm watching, listening to this thing. And if you listen to the exchange, it dawns on you that Joe Kernan has absolutely no idea that Ireland is a separate country from the United Kingdom. What has the 
weaker euro meant in terms of tourism? Yes, so I think um, Ireland's a very globalised economy, so we look to what's happening here as much as we do to what's happening in Europe, and we look to what's happening in growth. You have pounds markets. anyway, don't you still? We have euros. You have euros we in have Ireland? We have euros, yes, which, which has... Uh, Why you have euros in a, Ireland? A strong uh, recovery. Why wouldn't we have euros in Ireland? Huh? I'd use the pound. No, we, we've had the euro for some time and we're very happy with it. What about Scotland? I was using Scottish... Uh... Scottish pounds. Yeah. Scottish so, pounds. So they, they use sterling. They use sterling? They use sterling. But, but we use euro. Yeah. What? I, why would you do that? Why wouldn't we do that? Why didn't Scotland? No wonder they They're want to break the away. Okay, we're not. Um, uh, Aren't you right next to? Uh, we're very close, but uh, entirely separate. As you, sort of as the you same know, uh, same island, isn't it? And in the north of Ireland, they they have sterling, but they do. We, we use euro. Yes. It's just too but confusing. It's almost like watching an Abbott and Costello routine. Who's on first? Right, where where it, the minds are not meeting. Because as this conversation progresses, it's apparent a Joe Kernan does not know that Ireland is a separate country. He also doesn't understand that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. He thinks Northern Ireland is just North in Ireland. He also doesn't understand the difference between Scotland and Ireland because he says, well, why is Scotland using the pound? I mean, if Ireland is using the euro, why doesn't Scotland use the euro? Well, because Scotland is part of the UK. See, it all makes sense once you understand that Joe Curtin doesn't know. He just assumed that that is all one country. He thinks Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, and he thinks Northern Ireland is part of Ireland, which is all part of one country. Doesn't understand that the reason that Northern Ireland and Scotland use the euro is because they're both part of the UK, and the UK uses the pound. Ireland, the nation of Ireland, they used to use the punt. Right Before Ireland went into the Eurozone, they had their own currency. It was called the Irish punt, right? Not the British pound, the Irish punt. And so Ireland joined the Eurozone, and the United Kingdom stayed with the pound. And that's why England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, right? The, the areas that make up the uh, United Kingdom, they are all on the sterling, pound sterling. But Joe Kernan had no idea that this was the case. He was like, you know, I just got back from Scotland and we used the pound. Yes, because Scotland is in the United Kingdom. That's why he used the pound. Had you gone to Ireland, you would have used the euro. Had you gone to Northern Ireland, you would have still used the pound because Northern Ireland is part of the UK, not Ireland. See, that's what all the commotion is about. That's what all the violence is about because you have some people in Northern Ireland that don't want to be part of the UK. They want to join Ireland, right? That's why you have all that tension there. But I mean, and you would think that a guy like Joe Kernan would know this. I mean, I wouldn't expect the average American has no clue. I mean, he does he doesn't even know, you know, what you know what what states are in the United States or he probably doesn't even know what country borders uh, us on the north or the south. But a guy who's the financial uh journalist or a headline anchor on a, on a business show who's interviewing a guy from Ireland ought to know it's a separate country in order to have some idea what currency they use. But they don't. So these guys that are reporting, these guys that are talking on these shows, they don't know anything. They're just, you know, most of them are just reporters uh, that are reading these scripts. And most of the people that come on the programs are shills, uh, you know, promoting an agenda. So you're not really getting any unbiased uh, reporting of the events. You're just getting regurgitated propaganda or spin from some 
interest, some group that has a, a vested interest in 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 uh, perpetuating some type of false perception, because that's all that is going on. Now, when it comes to false perceptions, I read this article by Bill Gross, right? And in this article, he is trying to deal with the, the topic of inflation and deflation. This thing just came out, right? You can read it on the internet, and there's, there's a lot of reporting about it. And he's calling to task Jim Grant, because Jim Grant, like me, has been talking about deflation and why it's a good thing, right? And deflation meaning falling consumer prices and pointing out that falling consumer prices historically have been associated with economic good times. That our economy in America during the 19th, 20th century, when we had falling prices, um, the economy was booming, right? People were enjoying uh, a increase in their living standard because we were producing more. And as we produced more, prices went down. And as prices went down, uh, people were able to buy more stuff. And therefore, they had a higher standard of living because their incomes enabled them to afford more things. And so Bill Gross tries to explain why, you know, deflation that used to be good. And he admits and he agrees with Jim Grant that, yes, it was good back in the day, back in the good old days uh, of the 18th and 19th century that America benefited from falling prices. He acknowledges that and he says that Grant is right. But where he thinks Grant doesn't understand things is he doesn't understand how much the economy has changed and why the modern economy no longer can tolerate falling prices, that we need inflation. We must have rising prices given the current environment. And let me read a little bit of what uh, Bill Gross wrote. So first here in the introduction, he says, and why goes the argument, are lower prices so bad? Didn't Walmart get famous by featuring everyday low prices? And what's so bad about three buck a gallon gas at the pump? More dollars in consumers' pocketbooks suggests more spending, stronger growth rates, and ultimately more jobs. Jim Grant, one of the most gifted financial historians of our day, has long argued that economies did just fine during bouts of deflation in the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, in many cases, they did better. America in the 1880s was a period of good deflation, with output rising by 2-3% to from 1873 to 1893. So he's even acknowledging... That, yes, Grant was right. We did have good deflation. But now, right now, deflation would be bad. Well, why would it be bad? Well, I'll read a little bit more of what he wrote here. But Grant must know, I suspect, that our modern finance-based economy is not your 19th century Oldsmobile. My problem, though, is that much of the 21st century economy has been planted in the sandy loom of finance as opposed to the concrete foundation of investment and innovation. So A, he's admitting that we used to have a solid foundation, concrete, right, of investment and innovation, and now we've got, you know, a sandy, you know, foundation uh, built on finance, right? So he says, stopping the printing presses sounds like a great solution to the depreciation of our purchasing power, But today's printing is simply something that the global finance-based economy cannot live without. Going home, to praise Thomas Wolfe, is something that we just can't do. Modern economies have grown used to inflationary sand and cannot grow in the concrete-based economy that Grant eulogizes in his magnificently written histories. So here is what 
um, Bill Gross is saying. He's basically saying, look, back when we had a real economy based on savings and innovation and production, it produced a rising standard of living and everybody benefited. And that was great. Right. That was clearly better than what we have today. But what we have today is all we've got. So we've got to you know, preserve it at all costs that we can't go back to the good economy that benefited everybody that we had in the 18th and 19th centuries. We're stuck with this finance-based, debt-driven bubble economy that we have today. And because this is what we've got, the Fed has to keep on blowing air in this bubble economy to keep it from bursting. Well, why? Why do we have to do that? If we know that the economy we had in the past was better than the one that we have now, and it benefited more people, it raised the living standards of average people. If that's what we used to have under a more free market capitalist system with sound money, and now under this government engineered fiat currency bubble economy based on central bank printing, right, which impoverishes the middle class, produces this huge chasm between the very rich and everybody else, right, and is the source of all this uh, you know, social unrest. Why do we have to preserve that? Why, if we know that there's something better, why can't we go back to it? Why do we have to continue? If, if Bill Gross knows, and from this article, he clearly knows that what we're doing is wrong and what we had was better. Why does he say we can't go back to it? I mean, it's kind of, it's like somebody is a drug addict and they'll say, you know, before I started using drugs, my life was better, Right. But you know what? I can't give up the drugs, so I'm stuck with it, right? Or somebody who's overweight says, you know, before I put on all this weight, I enjoyed life more. I was more active. You know, I had more fun. I had more energy. But I can't go back to that because I don't want to go on a diet. I just have to keep eating these Twinkies. I mean, once you can acknowledge, right, how much worse your situation is because you screwed up, why do you have to continue to screw up? And I think what Bill Gross is more you know, trying to deal with is the transition. Yes, life was better before I became a drug addict, but I don't want to go to rehab because that's really going to stink. So I'm going to stay as a drug addict, even though I know things would be better if I went through rehab. I just don't want to go through rehab, right? So I'm just going to take drugs until I drop dead. See, that's what the economy is going to do. And And Bill Gross is wrong if he thinks that we can keep this going forever because we don't have... Uh, the guts to end it on our own terms. Because if we don't end it on our own terms, it's still going to end. But on terms that are going to be much more egregious. It's going to be more of a crisis when it's the markets that impose the discipline that Bill Gross, I think, rightly believes that politicians don't have the guts to embrace themselves. But why doesn't Bill Gross have the guts to say it? Why can't he just come right out? and call a spade a spade instead of having you, you know, read between the lines here to try to figure out what he's saying. He's, he, he doesn't want to be too much of an alarmist. And he's saying, look, we've got to accept inflation. We've got to accept a massive degradation in our purchasing power. Why? He manages, or you know, a huge bond fund. People entrust money with him. He doesn't care if the money is wiped out to inflation, if his clients go broke to inflation because we have to preserve this phony financial bubble economy because it's all we got and we don't have the stomach to do the right thing to get back to what we used to have, which was so much better. 
Why did America become so rich? Why did we become the envy of the world? Because we were a free market capitalist economy. We didn't have all this, you know, social engineering going on at the central bank. We didn't have all this price fixing and market rigging. We didn't have crony capitalism. We had real legitimate capitalism and the economy flourished. The middle class boomed. It was the envy of the world. And people were trying to come to America. The poor people from all over the world were flooding into America to take advantage of the wealth that was created by a vibrant, free market economy rooted in a gold standard. Why can't we go back to that? We have to per- we have to trade it in for what we got now. This rotten economy, right? Where standards of living have to keep going down, that we we've doomed ourselves to perpetual inflation so that we can perpetuate the bubble and 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 the the uh, the, the financial economy and the consumption-based debt-fueled economy? No. And when he acknowledges that the foundation is full of sand. It's because he knows that the structure that you build on it is going to collapse. So if it's going to collapse, why wait for it to collapse? Just knock it down yourself. Because if we knock it down ourselves, it won't be as dramatic and it'll be easier to rebuild something on that concrete foundation. But no, he wants to keep pushing it until it implodes around us. And that is the problem. And you know, he is right in that respect. That's why we have to, you know, stay the course on our investment strategy. We've got it. You know, the day of reckoning is coming. It's coming a lot sooner, I think, than Bill Gross understands. We have to prepare for the implosion, right? Because we are not going to dismantle this ourselves. It is going to be in the atmosphere of a currency crisis and a sovereign debt crisis that this phony house of cards comes collapsing down all around us. Then maybe, maybe then we can go back to the real economy. We can try to, you know, set the stage for that concrete foundation that that Bill Gross is talking about. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.